Thanks for tuning into a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. It's our prayer that God would use this to stir your affections for Jesus, that the Spirit would work through his word being expounded as you listen to this message. As a reminder, podcasts and audio and video are great, but they aren't a replacement for the local church family. And so if you're part of Redemption Hill, a reminder to come and join us. If you're not in Washington, D.C., we would love for you to get connected to a local church where you can be loved and cared for. If you'd like to give to the ongoing ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can do so at our website, redemptionhilldc.org. Thanks for listening. Well, good evening, Redemption Hill. Good evening, good evening, good evening. It's good to see you guys uh, as you're finding a seat. Just want to say how thankful I am. First of all, my name is Phil Masiri. I'm one of the worship leaders here at Redemption Hill Church, and uh, I don't normally do this. Uh, I get about four to five swings of this every year, so uh, it's good that you're all in my corner. Y'all got my back. We're going to get through this together, right? Yeah? Okay? Good, good. That afternoon coffee might be wearing off. Um, you need to kick the habit, guys. You just got to kick the caffeine. You just do. Hey, um, tonight we're going to be in the book of Psalms in Psalm chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, uh, I would love for you to turn there with me. If not, uh, we have Bibles as gifts. You can take it. It's yours. Um, or you can just read along on the screen. And so we find ourselves in Psalm chapter 3. And this is what the Word of God says to us. A psalm of David. When he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, let's pray together. Um, Father, we come confessing how often we look to other salvations uh, other than yours tonight. And so God, in our hearts this evening, Lord, we pray that you would do a work in us, that you would help us to trust your salvation and nothing else. And so God, help us. We need your spirit to breathe life into our spirits. And we need to see your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, it's the 12th track on Kendrick Lamar's newest album, that for me truly exemplifies the genius of Kung Fu Kenny and solidifies that genius in his latest work of art. See, what's a complex, interwoven narrative of self-reflection and seething social commentary? It finds its apex 
in this West Coast vibe, neo-soul rhythm of the song Fear, which is the third to final song on this record. Now, disclaimer, hear me. This isn't the album to spin on your record player when your kids or your nieces and nephews are running around in the living room. Though, confession time, some mornings in my own attempt to stand up and leave for work, uh, my little ones have been known to prevent my leaving uh, by chanting in unison, sit down, be humble. And humbled I am, and considering what I actually uh, allow them to listen to. But seriously, the album is definitely explicit, uh, and I would argue that it, that is entirely necessary for the content. See, Fear, this third to last song, is the type of song that confuses the senses, it, driving you into a barren soundscape carefully laid upon the foundation of a simple boom-bap kick-snare drum beat. Alongside the soul-funk-infused organ runs this agonizingly slow, crystal-clean, stripped-down electric guitar line. Throughout the track, there's a haunting counter-melody of strings that leaves you stranded in the uncomfortable seat of suspense. But you aren't meant to focus on the music. You're not meant to focus on the sound. Only the sound is meant to set this tone of tension and duality that elevates this impenetrable and harrowing subject matter that exists within Kendrick's rhymes. So the Compton rapper, he takes us through three scenes from his life, each one a further exploration of his most crippling fears. The first, as a seven-year-old, ducking the heavy hand of his own fearful mother. Second, as a 17-year-old filled with visions of murdered friends and family, all victims of L.A. gang violence. And finally, we see a 27-year-old Kendrick Lamar, terrified of his newfound voice and status, wondering if it all won't come crumbling to the ground. And so, church, we hear these lines from the song Fear. He says... The shock value of my success puts bolts in me. All this money, is God playing a joke on me? Is it for the moment, and will he see me as Job? Take it from me and leave me worse than I was before. See, fear and the swirling fog of uncertainty now has the larger-than-life Kendrick crippled with anxiety that God will curse him, or worse, that he already has, and his enemies. His enemies, ever-present, ever-circling, ever-multiplying and growing. Enemies who have followed him his entire life. They're now snapping at his heels. His fear is palpable. And we see that Kendrick, Kendrick Lamar, is a master of lament. And among other reasons, this is due because of his, his disarming honesty. And most of all, because of his true experience in it. He knows what it's like to be under the weight of binding fear. Therefore, he paints the most accurate portrait. And this track, this track is his masterpiece. Now we're met this evening by an equally skilled artisan of the lament, who perhaps would be the originator of this art form. See, King David, he knew fear. King David knew anxiety. He knew struggle and trial. 
And church, we hear his voice calling out to us tonight, driving us to the great listener of lament and causing us to take a deeper look into our own souls. And so the first thing we read in Psalm 3, getting into the text, the heading, a psalm of David, a psalm of David when he fled. David's running. He's escaping a terrible situation. He's running for his life. See, the kingship seems lost to him. He's lost everything, for his enemies have risen up and taken it from him. Uh, We get this out of 2 Samuel 15 through 16, uh, and the narrative lets us know uh, that David has been overrun. And in the midst of this, he looks about and he sees all of his foes. He sees all of his oppressors rising up. David says, how many are my foes? He's reminded. He's reminded of the many that are against him in this moment. There's a great Spurgeon quote connected to this text where he says, Troubles always come in flocks. Sorrow hath a numerous family. And that is true for most of us. When those people in our lives who rise up or those instances and circumstances rise up against us, it can feel like a multitude. And David is looking at a multitude. He sees a number of different types of people. First, he sees former enemies. Uh, If you think about David's story, what, what happened? David was anointed king in the aftermath of God taking the kingship away from the disobedient king, King Saul. And because of this, the house of David rose and the house of Saul fell. Though Saul is killed in the battlefield, the entire house of Saul is not wiped out. And so David has a a, a numerous amount of enemies in the house of Saul that would love to see him fall from grace. And so as they watch him leave the city, they're rejoicing. In, In 2 Samuel, we see that there's a man named Shammai who's at the house of Saul. And he's, he's cursing David, and he's throwing stones at the king as he leaves. And he says, leave, you man of blood, yelling at him the whole time as David and his troops walk out of the city. See, David had many enemies, and they were rejoicing in his misfortune. David sees them. The many are rising. Not only enemies does he see, but he sees former friends, former counselors, The man named Ahithophel, who is David's chief counselor uh, in his kingship, has defected. He's left David. He's gone after another rival king. And this has David uh, beaten down. This is one of his closest friends, his closest confidence. And he's left him. David has nothing. He's looking. The many are rising against him. Former enemies, former friends, and also his own son. We read in the heading, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, we don't quite know the pain of this, but you can imagine the depth of it as David leaves the city he loves, ruling the people he loves, because his own son has betrayed him. This is his son, Absalom. Absalom the beautiful, Absalom the strong, Absalom the well-liked. See, Absalom, just prior to this, had been banished from Israel. And he was banished because he stood up on behalf of his sister and murdered his half-brother, who had committed an unspeakable act. And yet Absalom has come back in some ways disgraced in an attempt to approve himself after avoiding justice. 
And now Absalom has gathered around him this collection of David's enemies, David's friends, and the people of Israel. And David is fallen under the weight of all of it. See, Absalom's betrayal is deep. And when we read about Absalom, we're, we're meant to go to a certain place uh, in, our, in our biblical lens. And so if we look at 2 Samuel 14, this is how Absalom is described. It says, Now in all of Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. See, Absalom was good looking. Absalom was strong. Absalom was tall. Absalom looked like a leader. He was someone that men and women could follow. But these are alarming words for us. See, the same, the same exact words are used to describe another king, the first king, the fallen king, the disobedient king, King Saul. These same words are meant to, to draw up this parallel that David has not escaped his enemies. And now it comes from within his own house. This is a deep cut to David. And you can imagine his pain as he leaves. But it's not just the many that are rising that David sees. You look at the text. It's also the many that are speaking of his soul. Many are saying, see, David is wrestling with a guilty conscience. He's reminded of his own sin. This, 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 the declaration against him that there is no salvation for him in God, it reminds him of the dull knife that he received from the prophet Nathan. See, if you think about David's story, what happened? Earlier in David's story, he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he had her husband killed, and then he took her for himself. David had committed a grievous sin against the Lord. And then Nathan, the prophet, comes to him in this kind of amazing scene. Nathan rebukes him and says, you're this man who has stolen this, this lamb from one of your people. And David is cut to the heart. But Nathan doesn't stop there. Nathan prophesies. He prophesies saying over David's life, he says in 2 Samuel 12, that because of this, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. David is looking at Absalom. Not only is he seeing his former enemies, his former friends, his own son rise against him, but he sees Absalom and he knows his sin. He knows his sin. This is the fruit of his sin. This is the, this is the prophecy of Nathan fulfilled. And you can imagine that as these people are saying of David, that there is no salvation in God for him. That David is probably thinking they might be right. Maybe they're right. David's pain is multiplied in this moment. Not only has he been betrayed and oppressed by his enemies, but he's also reminded of his great sin and whether or not God sees him rightly. And he feels the hurt and the pain of a child betraying him. This is, a, this is a difficult predicament for David. This is a low valley for the king. And I wonder, I wonder that if you haven't felt the same way before in your own life, and the answer to that is probably yes on a somewhat similar scale, when our enemies would rise up 
saying of us, there is no salvation in God for us. But the beauty of this, even in this first section here, there is hope. David is able to point out his enemies. He, he's able to point out who is oppressing him. He's able to categorize, this is what is occurring to me. Like, he can see it. He can see it rightly. He can identify his foes before him. Uh, last week, my wife and I, uh, we live just up here in Northeast, which is that way. Uh, and, and last week, around 11.30 Wednesday night, we were both lying in bed trying to drift off to sleep. And out of nowhere, uh, our room was instantly filled with uh, a massive amount of noise and lights, uh, somebody yelling over a loudspeaker. It was insane. Like, it was almost as if our, our, our whole house had just been invaded. Uh, and so I jump up, my heart slamming out of my chest, trying to figure out what in the world is going on right now. Uh, and in, that, in that, that craziness, I'm able to, to run to the, to the window and uh, peer through the blinds. Uh, and instead of being like, oh, okay, I feel better, uh, I see six fire engines right on our corner, like right in front of our house. And I immediately think, this is it. Our house is on fire. It's time to grab the kids. I have no time to put on pants. No time. And so I'm running. Uh, Rachel, a little cooler head, is kind of trying to figure out what is happening. And I sprint downstairs uh, to go look. Uh, and after things kind of settle for a second, uh, we realize that there is a fire. It's not our house. Uh, it's just across the street, a neighbor's house. Uh, and so it's black smoke plumed out of the windows uh, of this neighbor's house. We realized, okay, uh, we're okay, but we probably should be praying or something uh, because it's really, really crazy. And so we sat there and watched from the porch as uh, these incredible firefighters just, I mean, literally it happened like, it was so fast. It was so shocking how fast it happened. Uh, and they immediately were off the truck Grabbing, grabbing axes, grabbing hoses, sprinting into this house. Uh, and before long, they had it under control. Um, no one in the house was injured. Uh, and it was amazing to watch this. Uh, all my respect goes out to uh, firefighters. It was incredible. Uh, but when you think about this moment, these firefighters, whereas I was really, really slow to identify what was actually occurring, like, I thought we were on fire. I thought I had to get my kids. Um, the firefighters were quick and immediate. Uh, and as they ran into the house, they, they realized pretty quickly that the blaze had begun in the rear, the rear porch. Uh, and that's where they concentrated their efforts, fighting the blaze, and in no time it was put out. And so I tell this story because unlike my ability to identify what was occurring in my life right there, uh, the firefighters were able to recognize immediately. They were able to identify their enemy, identify the foe, and they did it fast, and because of that, there was, there was not as much residual damage as there could have been. And it was incredible. And so I tell this because David does a similar thing. As he's in his, as he's walking out of Jerusalem, he realizes this is what has happened. This is what is occurring right now. These are the people that are rising against me. He's identified his own foes. See, church, there's a great benefit of knowing what it is that plagues you. And the first step towards silencing those voices, those voices of fear, those voices of anxiety, those voices of guilt, the first step to silencing them is to know where they are coming from. 
And so you may need to ask yourself, even now, how often have you allowed or are you allowing the words, there is no salvation from God, to resonate in the halls of your own soul? David felt it, but he was able to to recognize and identify where it was coming from. And so for you tonight, are are you sitting in the weight of crippling fear and paralyzing anxiety? Would that cause you to doubt God's love and his salvation for you? Are you sitting there even now with a guilt that has washed over you, with a shame for past sins that you can't shake, and is it causing you to wonder if God really can save you? Friend, do you sit there now with hurt and pain from broken relationships that would cause you to forget about God's healing love. We're meant to identify these foes. We're meant, to, we're meant to do the difficult work of figuring out where our heart is. David has done that. David has recognized the taunt of his enemies. And so, as the king stumbles out of Jerusalem, a sojourner in the night, they reach the, book, the brook Kidron, and he's exhausted without food, without any energy left. And as he sits there with his trusted people, he's pummeled with waves of his own fear, his own guilt, his own hurt. And yet, yet, he is not consumed by the silence of his struggle. He's not consumed by the silence of his struggle. Look at verse 3. Immediately following this lament, David is able to say, but you, O Lord, but you, O Lord. In the midst of his trial, in the midst of his fear and anxiety, David is able to stop, recognize who's speaking, and look to someone else who is higher. He looks to the Lord, and we see four things that the Lord is to David, and they're beautiful things. Uh, Hear them now. The first is this. He says, Oh, Lord, you are a shield about me. Now, this can be kind of antiquated. We don't walk around with shields. But I imagine you're kind of seeing a shield that, like, blocks from the front here, right? Uh, something you can kind of pick up and, like, uh, take any blows that would come to your front. But what David is saying is, no, 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 this shield of God is the shield about me. It's a full covering of God. See, God is my defender from harm. David sees the Lord this way in the midst of his struggle. He sees him as a shield. And then second, he sees them as his glory. He says, you are my glory. Now, glory is kind of an epic word and kind of a nebulous word too. Uh, and so in the context, we're meant to think about glory uh, as God's radiance. This is the radiance of God that is reflecting off of himself onto his people. It reminds us of Second Corinthians 3, where drawing on the parallel of Moses... He says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. As we look upon the Lord, as we see God for who he is, we see his glory, and that glory is transferred to us. We're covered by his glory. This is how David sees the Lord. He sees him as a shield. He sees him as his glory, and he also sees him as the lifter of his head the lifter of his head. See, as David walks out of Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 15, it says this, 
It says he went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. All we see in that passage is dejection. All we see is depression. All we see is a a head bowed low under the weight of his trial and his struggle. And yet, in the midst of this, David says, you, God, you, O Lord, are the lifter of my head. It's only you who can reverse this situation. And so he's able to have his head held high, not in pride, but in confident trust in the Lord. See, God, we see David saying three things about God, that he's a shield, his glory, the lifter of his head. And we also see a fourth thing, and this comes in verse four. David says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me. He answered me. Not only is God a shield, his glory, and the lifter of his head, but he's also the listener of David's lament. He's a listener. He cried aloud, and God answered him. Another great Spurgeon quote on this text. He tells us, We need not fear a frowning world while we rejoice in a prayer hearing God. There's hope here, church. God is the listener of our laments. He's not afraid of them. He listens and he answers. The first thing David does coming out of his lament is he recognizes who the Lord is, who God is. And then he applies his faith. David applies his faith, and he does it in two ways. The first is this, a faith-filled voicing. What does David do immediately? He cries out. He cries aloud to God. He speaks to God. How often do we sit in our own struggle, in our own sin, in our own trial, and we're silent before the Lord? Calvin says it this way, amidst the blasphemies of David's enemies by which they endeavored to overwhelm his faith, he was not put to silence, but he lifted up his voice to God. David is obedient and acting in faith when he cries out to the Lord, knowing that he'll hear him. That's the first way he applies it. The second is this. David applies his faith this, by faith-filled resting. Faith-filled resting. See, I don't know what your experience with anxiety or great amounts of stress are, but one of the first things to go for a lot of people is sleep. You just can't sleep. The anxiety is so overwhelming and so encompassing uh, that the mind won't rest, and therefore your body doesn't rest either. Anxiety is a cruel taskmaster. And yet, what do we have here? In verse five, David says, I lay down and I slept. David sleeps. We're reminded of Psalm 127 that tells us that the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. David is existing in this promise. This ability to sleep in the midst of his trial is a certainty, a certainty of God's faithfulness even when he's completely surrounded and encircled. I think about Elisha in 2 Kings 6. Elisha is being pursued by another evil king and he finds himself in this city and his servant goes outside to, to make their plan of escape and the city is encircled by this evil king. The servant comes back 
terrified, saying, Elisha, what are we going to do? We're surrounded. And Elisha looks to him and he says, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I imagine David speaking the same words as they cross the River Jordan, believing that those who are with them, that he, the one who is with them, is far greater and more than those who are against them. David is able to act in faith by resting, by sleeping. This is a beautiful, a beautiful picture in the midst of anxiety. Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Sometimes, um, sometimes I can feel like approaching a sermon preaching that, um, that the pulpit is kind of this safe place that I can have this little uh, shield in front of me uh, against you all and against, ultimately against the Lord that God wouldn't want to deal with me. Uh, and yet I had the exact opposite this week as I prepared this text. Um, see, uh, at the beginning of this summer, uh, on Memorial Day, I found myself in our family car parked uh, just outside of our house, gasping for breath. I felt my chest caving in with pressure uh, as my vision faded into black. Um, I was experiencing a massive uh, panic attack. And so in the midst of this um, sermon on anxiety and fear, uh, God has much work to do in me. And in that time, in, since, uh, since really being diagnosed in a sense, uh, I've learned that I've been very slow to cry out to the Lord. Um, I've been very, very, very slow uh, to actually speak what was occurring in my own heart. And so to see David in this moment, acting in faith, obediently crying out and resting in the Lord is difficult for me because I'm still working through this. And yet, church, that is our call. We're meant to apply this by being obedient and crying out in our great time of need. See, muteness before God, muteness before God, it reveals this dull silence of unbelief in us. And in that silence, when we're in trial, it, it says things about us. Like it says where our hearts really are. And so you can use that silence to interpret uh, where you're at. One way, uh, you could be standing in pride. You could be standing in pride. You're not crying out because you're going to fix this problem. Like you're not crying out about those who have surrounded themselves around you or that which has surrounded itself around you because you trust in your own strength. That's pride. We're meant to walk away from that. Or you could, be, you could be standing there, sitting there with a great deal of bitterness that has risen up in your own heart. And that bitterness has, has not allowed you to cry out to God because you, you think that he won't. That God won't save you from this. That God won't hear you in the midst of this. Or tempted to disbelieve. And that's the third point. Is some of you may be in here even now living in a great deal of unbelief. And in your unbelief, you're saying, I don't cry out because God can't. God can't save me. See, our silence 
it reveals these sinful tendencies in our hearts. And if we're unable, if we're, if we're unwilling to express and voice our need for God, this mutinous church, it begins to form us. It begins to form us. And so as we hold in all of our fear, all of our anxiety, as we hold in all of our guilt and all of our hurt, we begin to bend inward. And we're no longer able to see right, right outwardly. We can't see things rightly because we've bent inward. Uh, David, actually the psalmist explains this for us. Uh, in Psalm 32, he says, For when I kept silent, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. And again in Psalm 6, my eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. See, friends, our muteness, it begins to form us to where we're unable to rightly see the world around us. But the obedience in crying out, it has a power. It has a power to free us. When we voice our pleas, when we voice our concerns, when we voice our anxieties, there is a freedom that comes with this. First Peter 5 tells us that we should cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for you. God is a caring, loving God, and we can cast these things upon him. Second Timothy 1, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Church, there's freedom when we walk away from our silence and our muteness. And this freedom, this voicing out, it begins to reshape us into a people who are not frozen by helplessness, but who are boldly confident to approach the throne of grace that we might find help and find help in Christ in our time of need. There's a discipline to confessing our need and it's, it's unbelievably helpful. And David is modeling this for us. And so action steps, questions for us. How are you practicing this discipline? How are you practicing the discipline of crying out, of voicing your pleas before God? Do you sing when we gather with the congregation? Do you know that singing is meant to unify us? It's meant, it's meant to call out that which we are wrestling with in our own hearts and allow others to speak truth into us as they sing over us. Do you pray? Do you pray with your friends? How often we spend countless time laughing and joking with our friends and yet not coming before the Lord together? Do you pray with your friends? Do you invite others into this place of fear, into this darkness? Do you, are you inviting people into this place of your life? Because if you're not, you're holding it in and you're being formed by it. Uh, in this last season, I have found um, the immeasurable benefit of, of seeing a gospel-centered biblical counselor. Um, for many of you if, you, if you've seen a counselor before, you can hopefully attest uh, to how helpful it can be. If you're struggling, if you need to talk to somebody, reach out. That is not, that is, counseling is not a sign of defeat. Do you hear that? It's not a sign of defeat. In fact, it's a sign of strength as you begin to recognize your great need in God and how you need people to help you understand that and deal with your own stuff. So believer, if you've embraced counseling, praise the Lord. If you need help, don't hesitate. 
Don't hesitate. There, there are people to help us. There's a great benefit in this. See, David has rehearsed this pattern, this, this confession of need, this voicing of his pleas, this crying out. He's rehearsed this pattern countless times. From, from the En Gedi wilderness, scrambling from cave to cave to avoid his pursuer Saul, to the emptied valley of Elah as the giant Goliath taunts filled the trembling ears of Israel. David has known voicing his pleas before the Lord, and he's trusted in him. He's trusted in him, and he's proved it by vocalizing his great need. And you know the beauty in all this? God met his need. God met David's need. He met it by showing David his own salvation. So that's the final point we see from this text, that salvation belongs to God. Salvation belongs to God. We look in verse 7. David says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. David is repeating his lament. He's repeating, he's coming back around to it. He's already done this before, and he's like, I'm going to do it again. There's power in lamenting. And as he, as he repeats this lament, crying out for God to arise and save him, he's recognizing that this is who the Lord is. This is what God does. He saves his people. This is the lament of faith. David's confessing, I am overrun, but the Lord is my deliverer. And so right on the heels of this lament, he's actually locating his salvation. Who is his salvation? God is his salvation. Uh, If you think about this, David is like a really skilled warrior. Like David's really good at war. Uh, So much so that the first advice that Absalom gets in, in the narrative in 2 Samuel, is the counselor says, hey, listen, if you don't crush David right now, you're never going to beat him. So, like, you need to pursue him now, because if not, he's going to go find a fortress somewhere, and he's going to dig his heels in, and he's going to destroy you. And that's, that's like the sage advice that Absalom gets. David's a warrior. He's skilled at this. And yet, what do we see from David? He stays the blade. He, he leaves his fortress in Jerusalem. He covers himself, not with sword and shield, but ashes. He spurns military strength and might, leaving close friends who have left him, leaving the comfort of home, and he's trusting that God is his salvation. Verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Not in many men, not in horses, not in might, not in in ability to work yourself out of a given situation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's entrusting himself to the power of God. And look how he describes this power. In verse 7, he says, you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. See, we get this beautiful image of God defanging the enemies of David, just ripping their teeth out. Uh, My sister had this cat for the longest time, a real moody cat, which I guess that's all cats. And I, I love just messing with it, right? I just, just get in there, just kind of rough it up a little bit. Well, what you had to be careful with is, is she was pretty quick and she'd sink her teeth into your arm uh, if you weren't fast enough as you recoiled, right? But as she got older, you know, year seven, year eight, those fangs started falling out. She had nothing left. So I knew I could mess with her and all I was getting was gums, just gums on the arm. 
This is what we see here. David is, is rejoicing in the God who is so strong that he just removes the fangs uh, from his enemies and all he can feel is their gums. This is a powerful God. And David has entrusted himself to this God. He's entrusted him for his own salvation. But not just his own salvation. David has entrusted, entrusted to God the salvation of his people. See, this is a very personal um, lament, right? This is a personal psalm. But David doesn't end it on a personal note. Instead, he says, your blessing be on your people. Why does he do this? Why does he shift it outward? Because this is why. David is king. And David as king means he's the chief representative of the people of God. So, David's story is Israel's story. And David's lament is Israel's lament. And David's trust is Israel's trust. David represents the people. And so in that moment, he's entrusting God with the people of Israel. Knowing that if salvation belongs to God, then it also belongs to God for his people as well. David is able to say this blessing, this blessing of salvation that I'm going to receive, that I am receiving in this moment in the midst of this trial, it's imputed to the people of God. See, salvation is communal. You and I stand here, and if you're in Christ, it's not just your salvation that you've stepped into. It's the salvation of God's people. And so look at all these people. This helps us voice our pleas before one another. This helps us come together and worship. This helps us to bear each other's burdens. See, salvation belongs to God and it belongs to God in the midst of his people. And so, friend, if you're sitting there reflecting on our cultural moments in our country, you may be tempted to despair. You may be tempted to despair that culture would swallow us up, that the outside world would, would prevail over the church because change hates orthodoxy, and, and tolerance in the end, it hates love, and independence hates community and accountability. There is much to be fearful of in our day. And yet, we hear the words of David, that salvation belongs to the Lord. And this blessing, this blessing of salvation, it's not only for me as an individual, but it's for the people of God. David has entrusted God to save him, and he's entrusted God to save the people of Israel as well. And then finally we see this. The salvation belongs to the Lord for David, for his people, and it belongs to God through Christ. It belongs to God through Christ. As people who have trusted in Jesus, we're meant to look at David and we're meant to see that he's just a forerunner. Like David's great and all, but he's only a foreshadow. He, he's pointing to someone else. And so as David, even in the narrative, as he leaves in the middle of the night with his people out of the city of Jerusalem, into, uh, across the brook Kidron, into darkness, we're reminded of another who did the same thing in John 18. That Jesus, he too was chased out of the city with his friends. And he crossed over the brook Kidron where there was a garden. We're meant to remember Christ as we see David. See, Jesus too would pray, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
We're meant to see David as a forerunner. Because God's salvation, it's not this nebulous thing. God's salvation is a person. It is a person. Psalm 110, we hear the psalmist say, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. We see an image of Messiah. We see Jesus, the strong one. We see Jesus, the king, that God's salvation is coming through Christ. And God's salvation is Christ's atoning work. It's his atoning work on the cross and his glorious resurrection from the grave that now makes it possible for you and I to turn from our sin, to turn from our fear and our anxiety, our guilt and our shame, and and, and to look to Christ and to place ourselves in Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. This is the power of God. Romans 1, Paul says it this way. He's not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel being this substitutionary death and atonement of Jesus. He's not ashamed of it. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so, friend, if you found yourself believing in this gospel tonight, you see yourself in Christ, that Christ has taken the weight and the penalty of your sin, then God's salvation is in Christ for you. God's salvation is in Christ's work. And if you've applied that, there is great joy to be had. David is looking forward to this. He's just a forerunner. He's just a foreshadow. So when we think about Christ in relation to this text, and we, and we think about our fear, and we think about our guilt and our hurts, the invitation is open for us. We read earlier in the service for our call to worship, Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to him with your burdens, with who you are right now, not someone in the future. Come to him and find rest. Come to Christ. The invitation is open. Believer, lay down these empty vessels of fear that you are so stubbornly clinging to. Friend, see the emptiness of the world and all of its offerings to you. Salvation belongs to God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Kendrick Lamar's latest album is a dark, panic-inducing depiction of the mind and soul under the weight of intense fear and anxiety, under the weight of shame and remorse, under the weight of hurt and pain. So much so that when when face-to-face with this bleak and depressing album, uh, most of the hip-hop blog world, they expected this follow-up album to immediately immediately release the following week. See, they expected Kendrick to be Kendrick, to flip the proverbial light switch on and scatter the boogeyman back into the closet where he would shout anthems of self-empowerment and rising above the struggle. This is what Kendrick does. But no release came. We're just left with the latest work. Kendrick's lament remains unfinished. He leaves us like the sound of a gunshot torn through the stillness of midnight. Silence. No resolve. Perhaps there is no salvation to be found in God. 
And in the dark night of our own souls, we are tempted to wonder the same thing. See, it's the time between sundown on Good Friday and sunup Resurrection Sunday that lament finds its truest home. Son of man, laid in darkness, a barren tomb for his bed, swallowed up by death and sealed up by a stone door, breathless in his atoning work. Surely, church, we are tempted to despair. But it is in the Savior's rising that we find true life, for he didn't remain on his deathbed, no. He got up, canceling our debt of sin and defanging death's fear, guilt, and hurt-inducing jaws. See, the truest lament is the one that finds its resolution in Christ, our man of sorrows, who bore the weight of this life and ours. And now in him all may find true life. Surely salvation belongs to God. May we find hope and peace in that today, church. Let's pray together. Father, you are far too good to us. And even now, Lord, we, 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 we sense your presence, we sense your spirit uh, as you would bring us to a place of confession. And so even now, God, I confess my need for you and how often I would, I would rob you of glory by holding on to my anxiety and my stress and my fear. And Father, we place that into Christ. And so I pray for my friends this evening. I pray that we would flee from the cruel taskmaster that is our anxiety and our sin. And we would embrace the glorious, victorious Jesus. And so God, we desperately need you. May we ever sing salvation belongs to you. That God, you would not leave us, you would not flee us in the night, but you're with us in our darkest moments. So Lord, we thank you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.